This past week, I had the opportunity to sit down with a couple, and we uh, were talking about the, some of the things that um, are particular to being Presbyterian, the Pres- Presbyterian flavor of Christianity, and, and maybe how that differed from some of the other flavors. And in our conversation, we uh, brought up the, uh, the, the five solas, these, these uh, five uh, um, thoughts that, kind of, or that come to us from the time of the Reformation but really weren't grouped together until the 20th century. Uh, the ideas of by um, grace alone, by faith alone, uh, Scripture alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. This morning I want to take just two of those, by grace alone and by faith alone. Um, I want to remind us, because it could be that, uh, that in our lives we have this experience of when, when we hear a command of God or we hear some teachings that happen to do with this, this confronting some behaviors in our lives that, that I, I know that I can find myself in that place of feeling shame or, or this expectation or the, the weight of all things, and, and I wonder about my standing with God. When we talk about faith alone and grace alone, we're brought to that passage where it, um, uh, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're told, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is good news. You are saved by God's grace through faith and not by your works. That is good news. The passage goes on to say that we are God's workmanship, that he creates in Christ Jesus, that we, we are um, made alive through Jesus Christ, that we are God's workmanship, saved by faith, saved by God's grace. And that as we become this workmanship of God, created through Jesus Christ, then that we do the works that God has prepared for us. Works follow God's saving grace. I bring this up this morning because in our series that we are currently uh, working our way through, Unwanted God, we have been looking at places where God's people have taken issue with what God had offered, with some character trait of God, some part of his nature, and they have rejected that part of, um, of who God is. And they pay the consequences for it. And the consequences are severe. And maybe we might find ourselves that we have been taking issue ourselves. We identify with those who have taken issue with some part of God's character. And so I find it to be just a good reminder. I know for me personally, I am saved by grace. I don't earn God's love. God shares his love unconditionally. And then he calls us into a life of obedience. Maybe you might be thinking, if I take issue with God, am I doomed? The Bible makes it clear that God is a long-suffering God, a God who suffers long on our behalves, who desires our hearts to become like his heart. I love that uh, place in the Gospels where um, there was this 
father who desired healing for his son, and the son was um, overwhelmed by a, a demon and, and behaviors that would be aligned with that, and uh, just torturous experience. And the father brings the child to the disciples, and the disciples are unable to uh, provide the healing, and Jesus comes along and has some words. And, and at this one point, the, the father says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And what a great posture to be in. I believe. I believe. I receive your grace. Help me as I grow. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And in that situation, Jesus indeed provided the healing for the child. Well, today we hit the middle of our five sermons in this series. And today we're going to talk about taking issue with God's trustworthiness. And and really, this one, this one here in the middle of the five, could be uh, a, a way of talking about all five of them. It's, it's as though they all build toward the center, whether it's from the beginning or from the end. They, they connect with this center teaching, this idea of taking issue with God's trustworthiness. Is God to be relied upon? Is God trustworthy? We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. First uh, Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. It's a story about Saul. And maybe you might be new to Christianity or to, to looking at stories from the Old Testament. And, and Saul is this, uh, he was the first king of Israel. There's a long story behind it. We won't get into all the story, but God relented, gave his people a king, and Saul was that first king. If you look up Saul in the New Bible Dictionary, you will find this statement about Saul very early on one of the most pathetic of all God's chosen servants. Ouch. Ouch. God chose him to be king. And in some ways, he looked the part and acted the part. But it turns out he went against God's word. And the one we're going to be looking at today, it's the first of three occasions where um, Saul uh, chose not to trust in God. Let's take a look at it. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and uh, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal. 
And all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God show favor upon us as we come under his word today. If it helps you to think through our time together, we're going to spend a little time talking about Saul, we'll spend a little time talking about God, we'll spend a little time talking about us. Saul, God, and us. Saul, God, and us. Before we get to Saul, in a time, um, in fact, can you think of a time where on the one hand, you knew that you had a clear teaching of God, like a clear, clear command of God that in the Bible, it's printed right there, it's affirmed by the church, that here's a clear teaching of God, and yet you found yourself in a situation that, that to follow through on that teaching might expose you to some kind of harm, some kind of frustration or suffering or, or loss. And you found yourself in that crucible moment, and, and you're wondering, on the one hand, I've got the Word of God, the, the clear teaching of Scripture. Am I to trust the God behind this? Because on the other hand, when I look around and everything I see with my eyes and hear with my ears and feel in my heart says just the opposite. Well, such a time is what Saul found himself in. When we get to our passage, we find that uh, the first part of it is a tale of two paragraphs. Uh, We have um, verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through 7. Let's jump into 1 through 4. What we see at the very beginning um, is uh, a problem with Scripture, (laughs) It's actually, if you compared some translations, there's a, 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 a big difference between how this passage is uh, interpreted. In the ESV, it reads this way, Saul lived for one year, reigned for two years. The NIV translates it, Saul was 30 years old, but 30 is in brackets, and reigned 40 hyphen in brackets, two years. And in the NRSV, Saul was dot, 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 years old and reigned dot, 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 and two years. So what's going on here? Well, there's some 
there's actually probably, and I think someone else referred to it this way, but um, there's a real uh, courage with the NRSV to be able to translate it this way, because we're left wondering. The, the, the words are, are, we struggle with the, the way that this text happens to translate. In fact, the Septuagint lacks, the, um, the Greek version of the Old Testament lacks verse 1. And, and so we're trying to make sense of it. Here's why I mentioned it this morning, is because transparency is, impor- is important. That for us to be able to open up the, the passage and be able to speak truthfully about it, if we're going to talk about trust, we want to make sure that we're open to receiving what's been put before us. And, and this is one of those verses where uh, the original text, we're, we're struggling to uh, interpret that um, rightly. And we can see the range between those three different versions. Then we move on, and we quickly find that there are these strange towns that are mentioned. It's not Galesburg and Washington and Morton and Havana. Instead, we're looking at places like Gibeah and Michmash and Geba and Bethaven and Gilgal, and I'm pretty sure I mispronounced every single one of them. So I thought I'd throw this map up on the screen, um, and you can see all the names there and the location, and follow those arrows, and it's as clear as can be. In other words, we're not going to spend a lot of time about the towns and, and all the movements that went on around, but if you want, there are resources you can explore that on our own. That's not for our time today. Here's what we do get in that first paragraph. Victory. Victory! Saul's son, Jonathan, he attacks a garrison of the Philistines, and he wins. They take it over. There is victory. And the people throughout the land celebrate this. The good news has, has been announced. Something to celebrate. Victory. But then there's that one line in verse 4 that says, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. Oh no. It's one of those times where it's victory and good news, but it's followed by an oh Jesus help me moment. Well, back then it wouldn't have been oh Jesus, it would have been oh Lord God. And I'm sure that we've had those times too, where everything seems like it's going right and then it all falls apart and everything seems like it's going wrong. Where we experience the height of achievement only to fall to the valley, value, valley of failure. To know the joy of victory and then the sorrow of defeat. Maybe we sense that, yes, we're in it to win it. But then circumstances change and we go, let's get out of it before we lose it all. When we move on to the next paragraph, even though there was victory up in the top and, and there was that hint of something that may be troubling, we find in the second paragraph it's all about the trouble. In verses 5 through 7, we read these words, And the Philistines mustered, or gathered, to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. There's a bit of exaggeration taking place here, underscoring just how large, how large the Philistine uh, threat was. And here we have the Israelites' reaction. They hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. The author is just trying to make sure we we get the feeling of how panicked they were. They were finding every place they could to hide. 
And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And finally it says, And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Trembling. It was good news, but now they're afraid. Then we come to Saul's undoing. And in our text, we are giving the evidence of his undoing, the excuse, the explanation, and the effects. And so real quickly in verse 8, we find the evidence. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. By the way, there's, there's no verse just before this that, that links a command from Samuel. And we need to know Samuel was a prophet of God. And so when he spoke, it was to be understood as in those times when he would issue forth the word of God. And it was to be followed as the command of God. There's a time back in chapter 10, verse 8, where Samuel very much says that Saul is to wait seven days. And, and given our, our passage here that there uh, was some understanding of that this meant for now as well. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And here it is. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. There's the evidence. You know, some scholars will uh, point out that, you know, the thing that Saul really blew here was that he was not a priest and he was not to offer the offering because he was not the priest. And, and others will underscore, well, it's because he didn't follow the word of God given through Samuel about wait until I come. Whatever it is, which, whichever those it might be, or both, that we don't find Saul arguing this point. It's the evidence. He'll stipulate to it. But then we experience his excuse. After verse 10, where Samuel arrives, we find in verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. In other words, I was afraid. Here's my excuse. Look around. Look, look at what I see. I, 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 I saw that all my... Troops were, were leaving, and you weren't here. And I saw the threat that the Philistines posed. And then he gives an explanation in verse 12. He goes, I said essentially to himself, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Two weeks ago, we talked about Adam and Eve, and, and, and do you hear a little bit of Adam here? When God confronts Adam in the garden, and, and, and Adam begins his explanation of, well, the woman you gave me. Um, uh, or maybe you might be thinking of Aaron, uh, what we talked about last week, and, and when Aaron is at the foot of Sinai, and, and, and the people have, you know, they want a, 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 an idol, and when Moses comes back and he gives his explanation, um, and here it's Saul, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Well, his decision had effects to it. 
We find them in verse 13 through 15. We'll just read a little bit of it. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, David. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You know, the real undoing for Saul was in that excuse. Three scary things. Three scary things. His troops were leaving. His troops were deserting. Samuel wasn't there yet. So he wondered about God's blessing and the Philistines and the threat that they posed. So there he stands in that situation and he has this experience of fear. I I don't have the troops. I, I don't yet have the blessing of God and I have the Philistines before me. And a choice needs to be made. Do I trust God and his promises? Do I trust the God who speaks through Samuel? Do I trust God's word for this moment or do I take matters into my own hands? Do I trust God or do I give out to fear? I want to pause here for just a second. There was a a phrase that came into a lot of use um, during the pandemic, uh, uh, faith over fear. And and I want to make make a distinction that we're not just talking about faith over fear here in the broader sense. It can be a really, sometimes a very dangerous line when we say faith over fear. In this situation, it is Um, very much tied to what God has revealed, what God has said, what God has commanded. And so in a time like that, when we have faith in God who has commanded these things that, that, and we have fear about something else, it's, then it's a distinction of faith uh, come overcoming our fear. There can be other times in life when we don't want to use a term like that, because someone could also say, how about wisdom over foolishness? And and so I, I want to make sure that when we talk about faith or trusting God over fear, we're linking it to what God has stated to be true or to what God has commanded or what to God, God has promised. Later in chapter 15, Samuel will say to Saul, he'll say, listen, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul, you were thinking that if I just make the sacrifice, I'll have God's favor And that'll be something on my side. And Saul, in different contexts, Samuel says this to him, but it applies to here that, Saul, you should have known that that obedience is what God desired, that you would trust him. So do we see ourselves in Saul? Do you see yourself? Are there things God has said to us that we have rejected because, well, we're not really sure we can trust him? Like, there's a great things, God, but do you know my situation? Do you know what I'm up against? So let's talk a little bit about God. And maybe we're asking, maybe we have been asking for some time, God, are you to be trusted? Are we really to take you at your word and live our lives according to what you have declared? Maybe we're asking, will God actually fulfill his promises Is life better with God? Or in this situation, is life better without him? Well, this morning, 
our time does not allow for a whole proof of God and a proof of all of God's goodness and, and a, a long discourse of, of what all that means. But for our time here this morning, let us simply connect back to the story of God as it's presented to us in Scripture. And if we look at that story of the God who creates, the God who creates humans in His image, and the way that God continues to come after people with His love, the way that God gives of Himself, the way that God is patient and long-suffering, the story of God and His people. We find the stories of God's prophecies being fulfilled. We find the stories of God's promises being fulfilled. In other words, when we look at the story of the Bible, we find that God is not a capricious God, that God is not fickle or inconsistent or unstable. He's not erratic. He's not a higgledy-piggledy God. And then we find that God sends Jesus that the second person of the Trinity comes into this world, that the God the Father sends God the Son. And we experience a closeness with God that to that time we had not as a human race experienced. And we see the life of Jesus and the integrity that it had. We understand his death on the cross for our sake and that he conquered death that we would have life with God forevermore. Is God to be trusted? And then God extends His grace to you. To you. It's God who puts upon your heart this yearning to know Him. It's God who causes our hearts to go from death to life. You know, when the Bible speaks about the trustworthiness of God, and there's so many different places we go to, one from the old, one from the new for today, This is from Isaiah, chapter 41, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what it says there. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I like adding verse 14 onto it. In fact, the whole passage, there's much more there about the trustworthiness of God, but we'll add 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. (laughs) That's that's just a little catch him up a bit. Like, Like, look at you, you little people. You little people, fear not, you little people, you men of Israel. I am the Lord who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. When we jump to the New Testament, one of the places that underscores the trustworthiness of God is uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians that, that Paul, Paul's making an argument to substantiate himself, and he does it from the greater to the lesser. So he's going to refer to what God has done, and then he'll get down to because Paul is following, following in the way of God that they can make the extension. Here's what he says in verse 20 of chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Do you get that? All of the promises when you look at the story, when we look at the story of God working in this world, God's, God fulfills all of his promises in sending his son. The Bible says clearly, our experience would affirm. And there, by the way, there are times when we go, I don't understand what God is up to. But it would affirm that God is indeed trustworthy. 
And so there's a choice. There's a choice. Do we receive that salvation by grace through faith? And then do we live our lives out of the workman as the workmanship created in Christ Jesus for those good works? The Bible makes it clear that we're not to be fence straddlers. To think that we can live for God because of salvation and, and then yet live for ourselves because we're not sure. We can't serve two gods. All right, so if that's God, then what about us? If we make that transition, and here I specifically want to talk about um, fear because that's the context that we find Saul in. And, and Merriam-Webster, I love their definition of fear, good old Merriam-Webster, it says that fear is an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. I love how clinical that is. Excuse me, I'm experiencing an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of some impending danger. In other words, ah! Now we know that there are extreme, maybe even irrational fears. If you go on to, I think it's a website, I think it's fears.net or some name like that, but I love that there's a website just given to fears. Um, uh, but they list as the world's top 10 uh, irrational fears. Holes, flying, germs, small places, thunder and lightning, Number five, dogs. Number four, open spaces, three heights, two snakes. Number one, anybody? Spy, pu public speaking, yeah, yeah, that's right. Let's switch places. Ah! <laughs> Danger! Spiders! Arachnophobia. All right, if those are the extreme or the, the irrational fears, I think there are some real common fears, especially as followers of God, that, that, that we experience that I think Saul experienced, there's the fear of suffering. God, I get it. I get what you say. I get what you've made clear to us. But in this moment, I wonder if I live according to what you've made clear, if I trust you, what's going to happen to me? And we're afraid. In some places in this world, we could be physically harmed for trusting God. We can be emotionally harmed. We can have our reputations injured. We can have um, something happen to our financial security if we follow the teachings of God. At least the financial security that we've come to depend on according to the ways of the world. We can have the fear of missing out. We kind of have the thing of, well, I trust God, but what if it really doesn't turn out to be true? Or, or what if Christianity turns out to be just another religion in this world? And I don't want to miss out on all these other things that I could have done. So I'll kind of go in on God enough, I think enough, I hope enough, but I don't want to miss out on these other things. I fear missing out. So I'm going to try and hold these two worlds together as if that were possible. I think we also fear letting someone else be in charge. You know, God, if I trust you, if I trust you and trust your words to us, if I let you be in charge of my life, will I live the kind of life I want to live? And I don't know if I want you to be in charge. I fear someone else being in charge of my life. So if those, maybe you've experienced some of those, I know I have. I know those very thoughts, they come to me quite easy because I know I've experienced them. And maybe you have too. So how do we move forward? 
Thankfully, there absolutely is a way forward. There's a verse, a set of verses that we've talked about a whole bunch of times in here. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This wonderful invitation from Jesus. He lays out a way forward for us. The first of it would be get to know God. Let me read the whole of the thing first. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so for us to know that we can get to know God, Jesus says, come to me, learn from me. God in the flesh welcomes us. The risen Lord calls out to us, come to me, learn from me. If we want to build this trust relationship, we can get to know God, and we can get to know his story in this world, and we can get to know his character, and we can learn from him. So we spend time in the Bible and small group discussions and in prayer and in fellowship, and we receive encouragement from one another. We, we sharpen one another. We have this experience of getting to know the Lord. The second thing we can do is receive what God wants to give us. We can receive what God wants to give us. Jesus said, I will give you rest. You will find rest. Paul talks about it in terms of the peace that passes all understanding. That God wants to free us from this massive, chaotic, uh, expectation-filled, shame-filled world. And he wants us to be able to take, uh, to make up our home inside of his forgiveness and his grace and his love and his protection. So we can receive what God wants to give us, peace and forgiveness and love and his spirit and his very presence. And thirdly, we can take on the yoke of Christ. In the midst of our fears, what we can do is, is be very pragmatic about it and take on the yoke of Christ, that we take Jesus' teachings. And here's what he says, take my yoke. My yoke is easy. Now, just, again, as transparency, we ought to be transparent here. Jesus also said in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, he said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In other words, he says, listen, I, I know that if you trust God and follow the way that I'm presenting to you, the world's going to reject you. Because it's counterculture, and it can be hard. But when he describes his own way, he goes, listen, compared to that, compared to the way of the world, what I give you is rest. When we think of Saul, God had chosen him to be king. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who created all things chose Saul to be king. If only Saul had trusted God. God has chosen you. I trust that. God has chosen me. We are the beloved children of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created all things, chooses you, quickens your heart. And so let us together choose to trust him. Whatever we might fear that stands in our own version of micmash, let us know that God is greater. And together, let's choose him. Let's trust God. Let's pray. Father, you know the journey each one of us has in terms of trusting you. 
You know how we, um, to whatever degree, we've been like Saul, that in our situation, whatever our crucible moments are, that God, there are times when we have chosen not to trust you. I know I have. And we seek your forgiveness. Would you find in us a heart like David's? Would you find in us a heart that wants to return to you and, and to say, yes, Father, to receive your forgiveness and, and then to live in your way, to trust you, to take your word, to trust your word. And no matter who stands on Michmash, no matter how big the foe might be, that you would find an obedience in us because we find you trustworthy. Thank you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.